Leonard Ravenhill, the great revivalist of the last century, wrote in his book, Why Revival Tarries, this, For as poverty-stricken as the church is today in many areas, she is most stricken here, in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, but few clingers. Lots of pastors, but few wrestlers. Many fears, but few tears. Much fashion, but little passion. Many interferers, but few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. This morning, our message, A Prayer for Community Restoration, comes to us from Nehemiah chapter 9. It's an incredible example of a community coming together for prayer. It's basically a prayer meeting of the whole nation of Israel. They finally realize that the only way they can move forward is to have community restoration, that all of them coming together, seeking God's heart, God's passion, and God's vision. This is number 16 in our sermon series, Repair, Rebuild, and Restore. And I encourage you as you listen to this message to follow along or at least read Nehemiah chapter 9. Many consider it to be the greatest example of prayer in the Old Testament. It's the longest prayer that's given to us except for Psalms 119. And it's a unique prayer in that it's done uh, antiphony, which means uh, it's sung or read or shouted back and forth by two groups of Levites across the people as they pray and worship. Uh, it's the same type of prayer that's given in Psalms 136, where uh, one side would describe an attribute of God and the other side would shout continually, His love endures forever. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of prayer, and I hope you pick up the uh, symmetry and the uh, the symbolism of the prayer. But it's important for us to realize in a day when many churches have forsaken or given up their prayer meetings or their time of corporate prayer, that really the only hope, the only help for the church today is prayer. Hope you enjoy this message as we join it in progress. This was recorded on June the 9th, 2013 in our early service. Father, we honor you, we glorify you, we worship you because of your greatness, because of all you've done for us. Father, you are great, not because we declare it or even because we recognize it, because sometimes we don't. Sometimes we take advantage of it and take it for granted. But Father, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, from everlasting to everlasting. God, you created us, you love us. You guide us, you direct us, you saved us, and we worship you. In your name, amen. You be seated. I received an email earlier this week. I was in my office and I get a lot of emails from different church members or people responding and asking questions about 
different things. And so this week I, I got one from a young lady who's been visiting the church and uh, last several months been visiting the church. I uh, had the privilege of doing her wedding and uh, her and her husband had visited the church and continue to visit the church. And uh, at, in her email, she, she responded to some things uh, about what was going on in her life. Uh, as we did the premarital counseling for her and her husband, uh, I began to recognize and listening to their faith story, they had dropped out of church when they got to college. Both of them grew up in church, dropped out, uh, stopped going. We began to talk about the role that God placed in their life, the role that God played in their life. And uh, I noticed she said all the right things, uh, all the religious spiritual quotes, all the religious sayings that all of us that have grown up in church are used to saying. Uh, but there seemed to be something missing. I, I just I sensed in my spirit there, there was something that uh, she just didn't have. And, and I really tried to, to deal with it in her life. And, and she, again, said all the right things. I walked an aisle in church, and I remember praying a prayer, and I remember getting baptized, uh, but I, I just, I continued to sense that she uh, didn't have a relationship, a, a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. It was more just a, a religious faith, and in her email, uh, she was sharing with me how that she continued, even as we had talked in her counseling, that she recognized that something was missing in her life. And as she's been coming to church and she's gotten involved in a uh, women's group and, and being around others, she began to recognize more and more that there, there was just something in her life that wasn't like everybody else. And she said two weeks ago after the message, uh, God just put conviction on her. She went home and, and she prayed to receive Jesus Christ and uh, asked him into her heart. And she said uh, she's prayed before and she's done all these things, but she said there was just something different. God, she said, came into her life, and it changed everything about her. She said there was a passion, there was a fire that she couldn't even explain. She, she was trying to explain it in words, and I can tell she couldn't what was going on in her life. And, and I was overwhelmed. I, I sat there at the, the computer screen, and just tears were going down my, my face just thinking about uh, someone's life being changed by Jesus Christ. And I, I left my computer uh, to go to an appointment. I mean, I read that email right before I left, walked out the door and went to meet with one of our church members who had lost his father this past week. And as I sat down and, and began to visit with him, and he began to share uh, all the grief that he felt. And his father was a great Christian and uh, lived right up to the moment he passed away, witnessing and sharing his faith in the hospital. But still, when we lose a loved one, especially a parent or a child, that grief that we face, and uh, it, tears coming into his eyes. And as I thought about that, sitting there with him, I thought, you know, here is a picture of what the Christian life is about. It seems like the Christian life is a paradigm of going from great joy and celebration and even tears of joy to tears of grief. And, it, and that even happens in our own lives as we contemplate the, the joy that we have in Christ Jesus. We sing some of these songs and we get overwhelmed with joy. We get overwhelmed with this understanding of God's uh, abundant love for us. And God's grace for us, and it just brings a joy to our lives. But in the same breath, we get overwhelmed by recognizing how we fall short of what God's will is for our lives and how we disappoint God. And so we go through times of great joy and times of great grief, even sometimes in the same service. 
I see people in this service all the time, in the worship service, that experience some incredible joy. And then all of a sudden, as God brings conviction, great grief. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says. See if you can relate to this. For in my inner being, I delight, I have joy in God's law. But I see another law at work in my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my body. And he says this, what a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You see what Paul was saying is I I get so excited about what I hear in God's word and I think about God and I think about how great he is but in the same breath I think about all the struggles with sin I have all the times that I disappoint God and he says and the grief overwhelms me. And the reason I tell you all of that, because that's where we are in our study in Nehemiah. Uh, As we've been walking through this book and looking at Nehemiah's life, and the children of God have come to a place where they wanted to reconcile themselves to God, uh, we've seen them go from great joy to great grief. Back in chapter 8, when we started a couple of weeks ago, uh, they began to read God's word, and in reading God's word, they were worshiping. They said they were holding up their hands and shouting amen. But as they got into the word of God, they began to fall on their face. Because they were convicted and they, the word of God began to speak to their hearts. And it said they went from great joy to great grief. And then Nehemiah and Ezra came around and said, but realize God forgives. And it said they went back to great joy. And then last week and two weeks ago, we studied at the end of chapter 8 that they wanted more than just salvation, more than just reconciliation. So they went back to the word of God and it spoke to their heart about obedience. It was a call to obey what God's Word says. It was a call to share their faith, to to go out and and declare God's Word. And we talked about that last week. And it said there at the end of chapter 8 that they were overwhelmed with joy. And here as we get into chapter 9, they're about to go again from great joy to great sorrow. And so as we think about that, I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about your own Christian walk. See, there's nothing wrong with that because it's always in great sorrow that God can bring about joy. It's always in our brokenness. It's always in our mourning. It's always in our grief that God can take it and make it into joy. And so as we look at this this morning, uh, I I want you to turn your Bible to chapter 9 of Nehemiah or you can look on the blue sheet. I think I've given you the first couple of verses there. Uh, and, And... want you to see how incredible God's graciousness is in our lives. God's greatness is in our lives. Chapter 9, it it says it's the same month as where we ended last week. It's later in the month. Remember, they did the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Tabernacles. They put the booths up. They put the tents up. And now they come back to God. But they're coming back in chapter 9 for something totally different. You see, in chapter 8, they were looking for personal reconciliation. They were looking for personal salvation. They had come, and they each admitted that we have sinned, that we have fallen short of God's glory, and they were asking for God to come in and save them. Now, here in chapter 9, it's a different prayer. They are coming as a corporate body. They are coming as a group, as a nation, seeking God's forgiveness as a group. Seeking God's guidance as a group. Seeking God's deliverance as a group. It's what we would call corporate prayer. Uh, The greatest prayer meeting mentioned in the Bible is found right here in chapter 9. You see, they are coming and asking for God's blessing, God's direction. I heard somebody describe it in chapter 8 as being comforting the afflicted and chapter 9 as afflicting the comforted. And and so it goes back and forth from joy to grief. They've come together right here in chapter 9 
for a corporate prayer seeking restoration. Uh, now, we've already seen some great prayers in Nehemiah. If you've walked with us through this study, this is the 16th uh, message in this study. You've seen that Nehemiah was a prayer warrior. He prayed incredibly. Uh, he prayed powerfully. He prayed uh, over and over and over again. But what we're about to see here is many consider the greatest prayer listed in the Old Testament. It's the longest prayer apart from Psalms 119 that's given in the entire Bible. Uh, and, and it's incredible in its power and strength and in its guidance. And you see, what I want you to see this morning is this is a model for us to pray. Whether it's a church, whether it's a, a small group, whether it's your study group, whether it's your family, that this gives us some insight and some guidance on how we're supposed to pray for God's leadership. It's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer for reconciliation. It's a prayer for bringing people together. And when I say corporate, that means together. And it is what happens when we come together seeking God's will, God's guidance, God's direction for our life. You see, you need to understand that the church, Christians are at their most powerful when they're praying. You see, when we come together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and we open ourselves up before God, when we reveal our hearts and seek God, there is a, a power that can't be explained. It comes in our being open before God. It binds us together. It strengthens us. And I, I told people this before. If you want to strengthen a relationship, you want to strengthen your marriage, you want to strengthen your relationship with your kids or your parents or your coworkers or your friends, pray together. Because you see, when you begin to pray together, and I'm not talking about praying around the table at a meal. I'm talking about seeking God's heart. And when you as a husband and wife or you as a mom and dad come together with your kids and you begin to pray together, there is a vulnerability that's exposed. There is a dependence on God that's exposed that binds you and strengthens you. Prayer is the most powerful thing you can do for any relationship, and it's the most powerful thing a church can do. Now, now let me just say this, because some people, uh, I think, have misunderstood or misconstrued what the church's purpose and power is. I heard somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago that, that described what God was doing in our church. They said, well, we've got two churches meeting in one building. Uh, and that is a horrible misunderstanding of what the church is. It's a horrible misrepresentation of what the church is. We have one church that meets at two times. You see, you're misunderstanding what God created the church. We're not a church because we gather in one place at one time or because we go to the same Sunday school class or because we worship the same way. Some of the most evangelical, powerful Christian churches in our nation have six and seven and eight worship services. It's not being together in one room that makes you a church. It is the love that you have for one another, the love that we have and the vision we have to take that love for one another and our love for God to reach out and be the light in this community. That is what makes us a church. It's our common bond. It's our common vision. That's why when Paul was looking at the Corinthian church that was in all kinds of trouble, uh, having all kinds of division, you can go read in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. They're, they're having all kinds of problems. And so Paul takes a moment to deliver what we call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We use it in marriages. We use it in romance. But really it was written for the church. Because, see, Paul said, listen, do you know what binds you together? Love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is never-ending. Love keeps no record of wrongs. He's talking about how we treat each other. Because you see, what makes us a church is our love. Love for one another. Love for the community. And love for God. 
That's why John says in 1 John, uh, point blankly and directly, if you say you love Jesus, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. You see, love is what draws us together, and it's in that love that we come together for prayer. And so I want to walk through just a moment, uh, chapter 9, and I'm not going to read it all. I want to encourage you to go back and read it because it'll be well worth your time. It's a wonderful example of prayer, but I want you to see the pattern because this is a great pattern for us to pray. And and now here's one thing I want you to see in this pattern. You're you're not going to see them asking God for anything for them personally. You're not going to see them asking God to do something for them. You see, what happens, most of our prayers, if you look back at your prayers this week, I wonder how much percentage of your prayer was devoted to God and how much was devoted to what you wanted or what you thought you needed or what you wanted God to do. You see, what we happens is we lose focus on the real purpose of prayer. You see, prayer, there are times when we're to come to God with petitions. There are times when we're to come to God asking for things. But a majority of our prayer is a relationship to God. And it's declaring who God is, what God's done, how great God is. And so in this pattern of prayer, I believe it's a power, powerful prayer of reconciliation. You, you want to pray to God to see him reconcile a relationship that you have, to reconcile a vision and direction and to get God back in your life in a relationship. This is a great pattern to pray. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to walk through it. And like I said, I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to point out some things. But I want to start in chapter 9 and read the first part. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Now, what does that mean? That means that when they came together, they came together in a spirit of brokenness. When you come in prayer, prayer is always to be a time of humility. You are to be humbled before God in prayer. It's not a time for you to come with an agenda. It's not a time for you to come in arrogance. The opposite of humility is pride. It's not a time for you to come thinking that you're going to show everybody. You know, sometimes people come and pray. uh, They want to show how much they know. They're trying to prove in their prayers how spiritual they are. That's not what prayer's for. They came broken. They came serious. They came prepared for prayer. They came ready to open their hearts up to God. The idea of sackcloth and ashes is a time of mourning to them. It says they came ready to pray. It said those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Now, why in the world would they separate themselves? Because they just probably read, it said uh, back up before this, that they had read the Bible for, uh, for half the day, and then they'd worship God, and then that led them to this place. And as they were reading the Bible, as they came together to begin to hear this, uh, they were all of a sudden recognizing from Leviticus chapter 6 that the reason they had been in problems, the reason they'd had difficulties, is because they had been around people that were bad influences on them. You know, the reason the nation of Israel was was where they were is because they started marrying people of other races. They started intermixing. They started taking other faiths and mixing with their faith. And they knew that to go to God, they had to separate themselves from things of bad influence. Listen, when you come to God, you need to drop all your agendas. If someone around you is keeping you from worshiping and keeping you from praying, then you need to get away from them. You need to get away from somebody that's corrupting your spirit, that's corrupting your attitude. Don't let them pull you down. Instead, separate yourself from them, especially when you come to God. Drop all the agendas. Said they separated themselves, and what did they do? They confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. 
You see, they were willing to admit that they were a part of the problem. They didn't point fingers. They didn't say it was her fault or his fault or this is the reason. They said, God, we're coming to you, and it's our fault. Now, remember, they're coming together as a nation. Most of these people didn't participate at Mount Sinai. Most of these people didn't build the golden calf. They weren't wandering in the wilderness. They didn't deal with the slavery and the things that came up. That was their fathers. But they were willing to take that on to make it theirs so that God could begin to direct them. You see, there comes a time when we need to be open and begin to seek God's heart as we separate ourselves, as we humble ourselves before God. You see, listen, there's a difference between being broken over your sin and feeling bad because you got caught sinning. You see, these, they weren't feeling bad because they got caught. I don't know if you've watched any of the uh, IRS hearings on TV. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how you can watch it and not want to throw something at the television uh, to see all the stuff that's going on. And it doesn't matter what political side you're on, that, that we have people with an agenda that are, are taking personal, private information and giving it out in public is unbelievable. But, but the arrogance of, of some of the IRS people uh, to sit there and, and some of the things that they said, I thought there's no contrition. There's no idea that, yeah, we did something wrong. It, it was more I'm upset because I got caught. And you see, so many times that's the way we go to God. We go to God, okay, God, you caught me, I'm sorry. No, you're not really sorry because if you're sorry, you'd be broken. These people were sorry. They weren't making an excuse. They were coming to God broken. And then it describes how they prayed here in verse 4 and 5. Look what it says. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, and it has a list of names with them. And it says, and they would call in a loud voice to their God. And the Levites, and it gives some more names I won't read, uh, began to say, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, I want you to get a picture of this. And uh, since we're not reading it, you won't get to see the whole picture. But I want you to see how it directs, how it reforms. You've got one group of Levites that are on this side of the area, and you've got another group of Levites that are on this side. And what they're doing is uh, really what's called antiphon chorus, antiphonal worship. That means one group would shout something and the other group would shout the other. This group over here would shout about the greatness of God and then this group over here would shout about the disappointing action of the people. And they would shout it across. It was the way that they prayed. And as you read it, you'll get a sense of this and get a sense of, uh, of the worship and how it builds and how it builds as the people are standing. He just said, stand up and they're worshiping God. That all of a sudden you have one group that is mourning and, and, and they're broken and they're grieving. And you have another group that is reminding the greatness of God. It's an incredible picture that's taking place. And uh, it's so pretty that the tears of grief from one side and the tears of joy from the other, and, uh, the people are standing and they're hearing this and they're worshiping. And so that sets the stage. And so now I want to give you basically what is the pattern of prayer. And in giving you the pattern of prayer real quickly, I hope that you'll be reminded of some things that we forget in our prayers. Look what it says there in verse 5. It says, Blessed be your glorious name. They're praying. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. For you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and the highest heaven and all the starry host and the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that's in them. And you gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. See, the first aspect of prayer here is they remembered the greatness of God. Now, we're just saying how great is our God. Let me ask you this. Do you recognize how great God really is? You see, I'm afraid sometimes in our pursuit of intimacy with God, 
we bring God down to our level instead of pursuing ourselves to his. We make God more in our image. We make him smaller so that we can handle him. And we forget that this is the God in Job who said, I stored the snow. I hold back the oceans. I spoke the stars into existence. You see, the greatest thing you can do in prayer is to begin to pay tribute to the greatness of God. One of the greatest aspects of prayer for any person's life is always going to be this idea of giving God his praise. You see, we sometimes make God too ordinary, too common, too everyday, and we forget who it is that we're praying to. That's why we pray these quick little pithy prayers because we don't recognize that the God of the universe that spoke this world into existence is the God that has your voice and is listening to your prayer. See, they remembered that God, if he's anything, he is great. Some of you this morning, if you're struggling in your faith, some of you this morning, if you're struggling with what God has done and who he wants you to be, a lot of times it's because you have diminished and forgotten who God is and what God can do. See, we, we've made God too small. They recognized that this is the God. They were quoting from Genesis chapter 1. This is the God who spoke the world into existence. They talked about the greatness of God. And then verses 7 through 30, the bulk of this chapter, they go on about the goodness of God. And, and in going on about the goodness of God, you say, well, what's the difference between the greatness of God and the goodness of God? The greatness of God is describing who he is. The goodness of God is describing what he does. And in doing that, they look back on their history and remember all of the things that God's done for us. You see, sometimes I'm afraid the church and Christians live too much in the present and in today, and we don't appreciate the lessons that we've learned from our past. Many of you, me. You see, we forget all the things that God has done for us, all the times that God stepped in just when we needed him. Sometimes, you know, we've been in, in moments of disaster, moments of tragedy, and we pray, God, if you get me out of this, you know, that's when we pray those, you know, missionary to Africa prayers or, you know, I'll, I'll never do this again prayer. God, if you save me this time, you know, I'll go to church every week. I'll write bigger checks. I'll be a missionary in Africa. It depends on how bad you're in trouble. But, you know, you pray these prayers that say all of this stuff, and we forget when God delivers us. We forget all the things that he's done. So they take... Almost 23 verses here to remember all the times that God's been good. They look and they begin to think of all the times that God was good when he formed the nation. They, you can read through it. They talk about God's goodness in, in, in giving Abraham the covenant. They talk about the goodness of God delivering them out of Egypt. The goodness of God when he gave them this word. The goodness of God when he delivered them from the promised land and into the promised land. You see, they recognized that God was good when he formed them. They also remembered by looking back that God had led them. He didn't just save them. He didn't just create them. He always led them. He always guided them through the difficult times. You see, we forget these things. That's why I encourage Christians to journal, to write down what goes on in your life every day, the times that God intercedes, so that you can go back during difficult times, so you can go back when things seem dry and read back what God did for you in your past. 
Read back the times that God stepped in and interceded. You see, he saved them and he led them, but he also provided for them. He gave them what they needed when they needed it. See, God is a good God. But the beauty of it is God just doesn't provide for you and your needs. He gives you more than you ever need. He gives you more than you'll ever appreciate. See, so many times we spend all of our time wishing for something that we don't have. We don't appreciate that which we do. We pray for things that we want or we wish instead of spending time thanking God for what we have. You see, when, and, and that's, our hearts turn selfish and we lose focus on the goodness of God. He led them. He guided them. He provided for them. And, and the last thing that it talks about in this chapter of the goodness of God is, is he brought correction. You see, when they did something wrong, God corrected them. When they disobeyed, and you can go and read there, it'll talk about how they followed God, and then all of a sudden someone got disobedient, and they turned their backs on God, and they went into slavery. And then in the midst of that, one of the verses will say, but God, time after time, delivered us. I praise the Lord that no matter how many times I get in trouble, how many times I disappoint, how many times I struggle, God's still a good God. You see, I think we forget, church, the goodness of God the goodness of what he's given us, the goodness of the provisions he gives us, the goodness of his leadership. You see, Corey Ten Boom, who, incredible author, lost her whole family in a concentration camp under Nazi Germany. She wrote this in the book, The Hiding Place. She said, deep in our hearts, we believe that God is good, yet how shallow is the understanding of that goodness? You see, we pray, she said, that uh, I've heard people say, how good God is. We were praying for it not to rain at our church picnic. It didn't rain. God is good. She said, yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God is also good when he allowed my sister to starve to death before my eyes in a concentration camp. See, God's goodness doesn't depend on whether we deem something to be good or bad. God's still good. And we need to recognize that in our disobedience, that in our struggles, when we face difficulties, God's still good. See, it's easy to thank God for his goodness when everything's going our way. But it takes a deeper walk to thank God for his goodness when we're in pain and we're in suffering. See, it was just a year ago this weekend that we lost one of our precious church members. Uh, my friend, Peyton, went to dance with Jesus, and she's got to spend a year now dancing with Jesus. And I'll never forget sitting with Randall and Sarah as they talked about the type of service they wanted to remember her. And they decided to end the service by singing it as well. And I thought, I don't know if I could do that. But I remember Sarah distinctly saying, I want to make sure people understand that while we're heartbroken and we're hurting and we're in suffering and pain, that God is still good and it's still well. And I I just have to tell you as a church, and and I tell you what I've told you time and again, I'm so proud of you guys. Because for the last year, it's been tough on them. It's been hell. Difficult, difficult week this week. 
But I know their testimony today is God is still good. That's what gets us through. You see, we can't allow ourselves to forget that we serve a good God and we serve a great God. And they end this passage by saying this, we serve a gracious God. See, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us out of his love and compassion. See, many times we take for granted the grace of God. We forget that we deserve punishment. We deserve hell. We deserve everything because of our actions. But God loves us enough to give us grace. What an incredible prayer. God is great. God is good. God is gracious. You see, I believe, church, if we could ever begin to grasp that, we could ever begin to spend our time in prayer focusing on him instead of us your prayer life will change dramatically your walk will change dramatically if we could ever spend our time as a body of christ and instead of fighting or disagreeing and and going this way or that way or, or looking at each other spend our time contemplating who god is it'll change us See, it's easy to forget in our busy hustle and bustle day that God is great, that God is good. Let me tell you this. You need restoration in your marriage. You need restoration in a parent-child relationship. You need restoration at work with friends. Sit down and pray with them and pray this prayer. Focus on God. Because you see, what brings us together is God. What holds us together is God. And what will see us through tomorrow is God. So I believe God's repairing and he's rebuilding and he's restoring. And as he calls us as a church, as he calls us as individuals to come together and worship him and praise him and honor him. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you really spent some time thinking about the greatness of God, the goodness of God, and the graciousness of God? That's the place power is released and joy is restored. That's what I want. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are great. Father, the history of this church is filled with the greatness and the goodness and the graciousness of God. Most of our stories, our life stories, our Jesus stories are filled with your greatness and your goodness towards us and your graciousness towards us. Father, we come now to worship you and to celebrate who you are. And celebrate your greatness. We come now to recognize, Father, good times or bad, you're still good all the time. When when we even can't see it, we recognize you're great. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And Father, in the midst of our disobedience, we recognize your grace that doesn't punish, that doesn't give us what we deserve, but gives us out of your love the correction to bring us back to you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this incredible example of prayer. And God, speak to us. In your name, amen. We're in this service with a time of worship. I'm going to open the altar if you want to pray, maybe wherever you are. I'm also going to open the doors of the church, which we do the first of every month. If God's calling you to be a member of our church, what God's doing here, you want to be a part, you want to get plugged in. I'd love to tell you how you can do that and pray with you and introduce you to the church. But we're just going to take a few minutes to worship God. If you've forgotten how great he is, how good he is, and how gracious he is, take a few moments to let him speak to you. I'll be here at the front if you need to pray, if you want to visit. But for most of us, let's just worship. Just stand and join us. Broken people, they call his name. And helpless children. Praise the King, and nothing brings him greater fame. When broken people, they call his name. So live.